Winter was here, but we're just getting started on our Game of Thrones official rewatch here on Post Show Recaps. And now here are the two guys who are uh, better known as the kitchen wenches of podcasting. I am Rob Sestrino, back with Josh Wiggler. Josh, how are you? I'm doing really well. Rob, I just wanted to start this podcast off with a compliment and tell you that you are my weakness. Oh, that uh, I don't know if the language is so good or I don't know if I'm that's being lost in translation. But thank you. That's a compliment. It's definitely meant as a compliment. It is definitely not meant as anything else. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much here. And I think what probably is the best hour of season two to date here in what is dead may never die as we recap the events of this episode spoiler free and then get into all of the long-term ramifications here with josh wiggler josh how are you i'm doing really well and i will sign off on that take i think through three episodes of season two this is by far the best episode of season two so far you've got action you've got everything that's happening at the end of the episode with yorin r.i.p yorin we hardly knew you uh very sad to lose you we've got some interesting developments happening at the iron islands we've got some new characters who are entering the mix through the renly baratheon storyline uh some classic Tyrion lannister king's landing shenanigans happening a little bit of a, a political shake-up happening in king's landing thanks to Tyrion. some great scenes between Tyrion and many of these power players from the small council that are true delights as far as I am concerned. And just some great mythology building as well. So I think, yeah, by and large, uh, what is dead may never die. May it never die, Rob. We needed this episode. It was huge and we needed it and we got it and it's great. Okay, let's jump around the Seven Kingdoms real quick and nothing going on in the East in this episode. Talk about all of the major headlines in this episode. As you mentioned, Yorin is no more Warren, uh, we have a very <laughs> sad, sad moment. He gets a great death episode. Uh, really got the uh, you know uh, visibility spike before the Kingsguard uh, comes out and takes Yorin out in this episode. Yeah, it gets the, I don't know, I don't think it was a spike. He got a few spikes. He got a crossbow, yeah, crossbow. spike to the shoulder, two spear spikes, uh, the the long sword straight through the back, uh, which that seemed, I don't know, if, I mean, probably, got a magic, quick. painful, but also quick. seemed immediate, immediate, very quick, like decisive, a decisive, a decisive way to go. Uh, but yeah, very, very sad to lose Yorin here, who is giving Arya Stark, uh, you know, quite the bedtime story right before he goes talking about Willem, Willem, the man who uh, was responsible for killing Yorin's brother and who Yorin one day killed himself and was the reason why he ended up going to the wall. And he talks about how he can remember that guy vividly, this person who I don't know if, if it reads that way to you as like the first kill he ever made in his life. Uh, it certainly reads that way to me and how that's just such a vivid memory. And you remember that more than you remember the family member. It's kind of a dark thing to tell this poor girl Arya Stark who has just lost everything in such gruesome shocking fashion uh, with everything that happened to her father at the end of season one and then it just explodes into this all out battle uh, you know really paying off where we were in episode two of season two when the men from King's Landing who were looking for Gendry uh, were chased off after Yorin threatened them pretty viciously there and now they're back and they've got backup and Yorin and his forces such as they are stand no chance. We lose Yorin. We lose poor Lamy Greenhands, Rob. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. If anybody from the uh, Kingsguard asks, that was Gendry. That was Gendry, if you're listening, Kingsguard. I know we've got a lot of Kingsguard listeners, a lot of City Watch uh, people listening in here on Post Show Recaps. Uh, but yeah, Lamy Greenhands. This was, I always thought that this was a really, really uh, sad ending for this episode, where like it, it kind of has that moment where Arya is able to protect Gendry a little bit by saying, yeah, that was Gendry, that guy over there. You know, smooth move. He's got the bull helmet and everything, so why not? Uh, but I just, I always thought that the way that this poor kid goes out is just brutal. Where, you know, this guy is, is you know, saying, hey, are you, is something wrong with your leg, boy? He's like, no, you're going to have to carry me. I can't walk. And he gives him the hand and helps him up. Mm-hmm. And he just helps him to, like, do, like, a sit-up straight into needle, uh, straight through the throat. And just, like, the blood gurgling, it's so visceral and terrible. Uh, and, you know, obviously, this is the end of Lamy Greenhands, that there's no coming back from a moment like that. So he's not a major character on the show by any stretch of the imagination. But when I think about, like, the brutal deaths on game of thrones and i think back on like the early days of game of thrones especially i always remember this one as just like uh, just a horrible horrible statement on the brutality of this world right and he gets it in sort of like a bazinga sort of way um, right yeah you well, got oh, past carry yeah. oh okay i like uh psych no i'm not carrying you you're dead so, yeah, you're dead. Yeah, yeah. And, and everyone's laughing. So like it really gives you more of a feel of just how horrible these people are and how how callous everybody is and how there's just no no respect uh, for the living and the dead. You know, life is such a delicate thing in this world, in our world as well, Rob, but certainly in the world of Game of Thrones. And there's uh, it's not precious. You know, they're not following by the Eastman rules out here in Westeros. No. So Arya and Gendry headed off to Harrenhal as prisoners of the Kingsguard, uh, what, Lannister Baratheon army? Yeah, Lannister loyalists. Amory Lorch is the guy who's rolling up here. I always thought Amory Lorch was an awesome name. I always want to say Armory Lorch. It's a good name. It's a good name. Cool name, man. We see a lot of business going on at the Renly Baratheon camp. It's been a minute since we've seen Renly. Uh, We catch up with Renly and Loras, and we have the introduction of Marjorie Tyrell and also Brienne of Tarth in this episode, Josh. Yeah, and I think that even if you're not a Game of Thrones person, it's very likely that you at least recognize these actors who are playing Marjorie and Brienne. There's Natalie Dormer, who is a fantastic actress. Uh, Gwendolyn Christie, who is playing Brienne, who is also well-known for her work in Star Wars. Star Wars The Last Jedi, Rob, coming out just a couple of days from this recording. I mean, just is to she well-known right for now. that? I, mean, I know she's in it. I mean, she was like four minutes of screen time. In, I guess uh, if, you, if you pay attention to like the press and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you recognize that voice underneath uh, Brienne's helmet when Brienne is wearing that helmet in her first scene here. She's hoping uh, for a visibility spike. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully, or a visibility lightsaber at least. Uh, yeah, so making a return appearance in Star Wars The Last Jedi in just a couple of days. Gwendolyn Christie, welcome to the Game of Thrones universe. Right. And so we know that Renly is one of the uh, kings battling for the Iron Throne at this point. He has gathered 100,000 men uh, between the forces of Storm's End and through a marriage now to Marjorie Tyrell. And uh, we see that part of the consummation of this marriage needs to be uh, putting a baby inside Marjorie Tyrell, which has proved to be a difficult feat to this point, Josh. 
It has been difficult. It has not happened yet. Of course, we know that Renly is in a relationship with Loras Tyrell, with Marjorie's brother. Uh, and apparently Marjorie knows that as well. Yep. Uh, that's at least it's a, if, if it's not an open secret throughout the Seven Kingdoms, it's certainly well known within the Tyrell not circle. Not a deal breaker for Marjorie. She seems okay with it. You know, she's even saying, like, look, if you need Loris in here, like, we can bring Loris in here. I'm happy to do that. We just kind of have to accomplish the mission. Mm-hmm. And I think a, a scene like that really tells you a lot about Marjorie Tyrell, that she's a very pragmatic person, that she's ambitious, that she's willing to be politically aligned with someone like Renly Baratheon, even if they're not actually going to have any kind of true romantic interest in one another. Uh, so I think it tells you a lot about this new character who is stepping into the field. And I don't know that it's immediately clear in the episode, but I think it's worth just giving some backstory on who the Tyrells are. You know, the Lannisters are at this point in the show really established as the wealthiest family in all of Westeros, just like very powerful because of their wealth. The Tyrells are not far behind, and that's where Marjorie and Loras are from. They're from House Tyrell, which rule High Garden, which is one of the great houses, uh, one of the great castles in the Reach, uh, which is this very important region of Westeros. So this alliance between the Tyrells and between Renly Baratheon really makes Renly Baratheon a contender. We know that Renly Baratheon is the youngest of the three Baratheon brothers, so in that regards, his claim to the Iron Throne is worse than Stannis, but he's a pretty beloved figure. People really like him, and he has this really amazing political alliance with the Tyrells. So if he seems really confident and seems like he really has a good shot here, that's why. Like I think he's got a lot working out for him in his favor in this episode. And Kat Stark, she is down there in the Stormlands to try to treat with Renly's forces and get something going between his group and then also the Rob Stark group. Renly, I think, is the most receptive to this idea out of anybody that is in his court. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, Renly had a lot of love for, uh, I don't know if I want to say a lot of love for Ned Stark, but they got along decently well. It seemed like they were pretty simpatico, and when Ned did not bite at Renly's offer of, like, back me as the king, and we will, like, do what Robert's Rebellion should have done, we'll honor my brother's legacy, and when Ned didn't back him up and instead decided to honor the line of succession and back Stannis Baratheon, uh, you know, Renly decided to really skip town and, and bail with his loyalists and get out of there and start forming his own coalition. But I think of the people who we have seen that have an interest in either becoming like the ruler of all of Westeros or at least becoming kings in their own right, I think that Renly is clearly the only person that seems like he's going to be willing to play ball with Rob Stark. So a smart play on Rob's part to send Catelyn to treat with Renly. Uh, it seems like at least it is a friendly, open conversation at the moment. Let's see where it goes. All right. Meanwhile, in the Iron Islands, uh, we pick back up with Theon after the embarrassing events of last week's episode. We find out what Balon Greyjoy has planned, that he wants to raid the north while the Stark forces are heading south. And while nobody's home, he wants to send the Greyjoy fleet in to take back the North. Theon is like, no, why would we do that? Because uh, we could work with the Starks and then they'll give us Casterly Rock. We like that, right? And they just basically shame Theon Greyjoy. Uh, who, what family are you in? Why, uh, why, why don't you want to, uh, you don't, you don't, uh, I guess you love the Starks so much, little Theon. 
Yeah, your time with the wolves has made you weak. And Theon rather weakly retorts, but you you said like you're acting like I wanted to be no, with I this. I was f- completely on board with Theon there uh, for the first time in this series. Where oh, I was like, of course. It's like, you know what? Theon's making some sense here. He's like, I didn't want to leave. You gave me away. <laughs> Right, but I'm saying and there was like, no retort to that. It was like, well, that was a different time. You know, I, I screwed up that they were just like, uh, shut up. We don't want to hear from you. Right. I think that that kind of delivery is not necessarily something that is uh, super respected at the uh, in the Iron Islands. I think, again, like we're learning a lot about characters through action. I'm not uh, even and, supposed to be here. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think that we are very clearly seeing that, you know, the Greyjoys and the Iron Islanders at large, they take, you know, they take what is theirs. They get nothing like other than what people. they put in like garbage people. Indeed, truly the garbage people of Westeros, I think, is a fair comparison here uh but they you know they really are all about that you reap what you sow type of life or we do not sow uh is there is their word so i guess they don't reap what they sow uh but theon's way of life uh is a lot more northern or at least there is a there's a loyalty to the starks that the iron islanders feel has made theon incredibly soft and theon is saying why don't we align with rob stark and go after the lannisters you can get like so much more power you can have Casterly Rock. Why wouldn't you want that? But Balon Greyjoy, he wants it all. Or at least, you know, he does not want anything from the North. And if the show hasn't made it extremely clear, it, there used to be, there was a, a war once upon a time. It was after Robert's Rebellion where the Iron Islanders rebelled themselves and tried to, you know, start things off on their own. And the Northerners really put them in their place alongside the other forces of the Crown. There's a lot of great war stories that come from that. That's how Theon's older siblings were killed and that's how theon came to be a hostage uh quote unquote at house stark uh so there's a lot of bad blood between balon Greyjoy and just the idea of any kind of stark alliance is not going to happen and instead in fact he would love to attack the north now that he knows that the north is sparsely defended because rob is on the move and seems like theon makes a decision in that regard yeah, he writes a note, and um, the note says, I actually uh, screenshot it. Do you want to hear uh, Theon's note? Yes, please, okay. I would. He says, and it was such great penmanship for Theon. I'm I really noticed impressed. that. I noticed that, uh, yes. He writes, uh, Rob, I hope this, this reaches you in time. My father has rejected the offer and plans to attack the North, raiding the shores and taking Deepwood Mott. Mobilize your army and make for the north before it's too late. I'll write again when I can. And then very dramatically burns that letter. Yeah, yeah. Ah, oh, man. He burns the letter, and then he goes and goes through, like, the whole ritual that the Iron Islanders do of basically their their baptism of, like, I don't know. I don't know what you want to call it. Their badass baptism. Uh, this is how you become a true Iron Islander, and he is reborn. Uh, what is dead may never die. It's what we get the episode title from. And it seems to be a declaration of Theon's intent. It seems to be that Theon is enlisting here with the Iron Islands regime and wants to do his daddy proud uh, and is going to be turning his back on Rob Stark potentially, which is, I don't know. It seems like a, seems like kind of a douchey move. No. Yeah. Pretty douchey move, but he just wants to be loved so much by his father that uh, that's what he decides to do uh, to be uh, just uh, the sibling rivalry is really heating up. 
He's going full Greyjoy. You never go full Greyjoy. He's going Bad full Greyjoy. Okay. Bad luck. Let's talk about what's going on in King's Landing. And uh, we really are seeing uh, Tyrion trying not to go wrong where other hands of the king, like Ned Stark, like John Aaron, have gone wrong in the past couple of months and ended up dead. So Tyrion is hoping to root out a spy in King's Landing. He does this by telling a story to three different members of the small council in Pycelle, in Varys, in Littlefinger. He changes one major detail of the story with each of them in an attempt to root out the mole. He's on mole patrol and he does he figure is. out which person is going back to Cersei. One of the many reasons why I love Tyrion Lannister so much is that he, like me, is always on mole patrol. And he roots out the mole here very effectively in a really spectacular sequence. I think the best sequence of season two so far. And one of my very favorite scenes of the whole show, quite frankly, is how he's telling Pycelle, like, you can't, you know, the queen mustn't know we're going to, this is a plan. Like, if you tell her, like, it's going to be a really big deal. We're going to send Marcella to Dorne. And remember, the queen mustn't know. And Varys like oh the queen mustn't know i love plans yes. that start this way uh and it's just you know transitioning from like it's all in the same setting it's all in the same location and it's just you know trickery of camera angles and editing that just like keeps you going from like place to place to place that makes you realize what Tyrion is doing here uh it's a great chapter in the book in a clash of kings by george r, r. martin and it's one of my favorite adaptations of the book of that uh, of the material uh to the show i think it's just cut together so so brilliantly and of course we're going to find out which is the real plan and through that we're also going to find out who's the true traitor and that is unfortunately the the nimble the surprisingly nimble Grand Maester Pycelle is the one who narks Tyrion out to Cersei uh, Pycelle seems like he's probably going to be regretting that decision while he's uh, rotting away in the black cells at least for a minute yes he gets his beard cut off and is sent away to the black cells of course that we see that cersei is none too pleased with Tyrion to find out that marcella is being shipped off to dorne i believe this is also the first time we're hearing about dorne in the series that is a region that is all the way to the south the most southern of the seven kingdoms and a place an area that does not have a high opinion of the lannisters josh yeah, I don't know if we've heard about the Dornish or not. Certainly not in any real major capacity. You've heard probably like Dornish Red. I think that Jano Slint and Tyrion Lannister were drinking some of that in their scene in last week's episode. So the Dornish, they they produce great wine, is one of their amazing qualities. Uh, they are also known for being and not like hot. When Theon was complaining about being sent to live with the Starks, he produced right. great <laughs> wine there also. A different kind of wine. No, they're wine in that regard is not so bad either mm -hmm. uh but we will we will hear more about the dornish and see more from the dornish in the future but uh yeah i think you you laid out exactly who those people are pretty well they were also connected to the targaryens when the targaryens were last in power uh so there's a little bit of a connection there and that's a big part of the reason why they are not big fans of the lannisters and the baratheons who helped to overthrow the targaryen regime there's also some business with Tyrion still trying to hide shed he needs to find a job for her. He ultimately lands on having her be a handmaiden of Sansa. I mean, to me, this still strikes me as if you're going to try to hide something from Cersei, I think attaching Shay 
to Sansa feels like a, a very high degree of detection uh, that could go on. I feel like there's a lot of other jobs in King's Landing she could have done besides being a kitchen wench that maybe would not be around Cersei so much. But, uh, you know, that is not my place to second guess. I don't know. It's like the the hiding in plain sight strategy, right? Like, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, no one's going to notice you if you're right there. Isn't that a thing? Doesn't that work? Maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Didn't work Shea on Hunted. Shake kind of sticks out like a... <laughs> on Hunted? Yeah. No. Shake kind of sticks out like a sore thumb, too. Uh, Just because like she has very, no experience being a handmaiden. That's the thing. Like, she's really obviously bad at this, and she's going to be Sansa's handmaiden, who is going to be very visibly on Cersei's radar. Uh, yeah. And Sansa, like, even, you know, God bless her. You know, she's been through a real trauma. Been hanging out with Joffrey uh, too much, maybe, though. You know, she's been through a real trauma. She's been through a deep tragedy she is trying to reconcile all of that she has no idea where Arya is her father's been killed the people that she is surrounded by want everyone else in her family dead she's a hostage not unlike Theon Greyjoy and she's wise enough not to whine about it so much but she is clearly distraught and having a terrible time and she's just being like ruthless to Shay. Uh, I don't know if that's just like yeah. a real indictment of Shay. <laughs> no, but <laughs> you can imagine where like once upon a time where Sansa and Joffrey like would have been really happy together. Yeah. In an alternate timeline where Maybe. Ned Stark didn't get killed. Like you can, you know, kind of see the alternate history okay, where got it. they end up sort of like having this like, <laughs> uh, you know, unhappily ever after together. Right, right. I mean, Joffrey's true colors have shown at this point in the show. So I think it's uh, no spoiler to say that, like, you know, he's a, he's a terrible person. Like that is clearly out there. But, you know, Sansa was not great as a kid either and she's been through this trauma that I think has steeled her a little bit more and she's trying to really navigate this situation right now and she is I'm sure reevaluating a lot of her earlier thinking about what a happily ever after means and like her you know her Disney princess dreams I think have been dashed pretty severely with the death of Ned Stark uh, but you're still seeing you know she's still a kid you know she's still a kid and she doesn't like Shay and she's telling her you're supposed to brush my hair you're supposed to clean my chamber pot not now there's nothing in the chamber pot it's too late to brush my hair clean the table you know it's just very frustrated with shay so fun dynamic that i think uh it'll be fun to see where that all goes okay uh, let's talk about what's going on up at craster's keep we had the cliffhanger at the end of last week's episode where craster gets the jump on john snow josh this episode begins with craster apparently has uh beaten john snow's ass so badly that he is just dragging him back to craster's keep and then throwing throws Jon Snow through the door to start the episode. It's not like Jon Snow is unconscious. Like, I really am having a hard time believing that Craster was just able to just, like, uh, bring the beat down on Jon Snow for this entire walk back to Craster's Keep. I think at this point in the show, through three episodes of season two, I think it is now safe to say that Craster is like the biggest badass <laughs> on Game of Thrones, that he is able to just like knock Jon Snow's block so severely. Uh, <laughs> and we know, you know, Jon Snow, as he has often reminded us, is the best fighter of all time. I'm the greatest swordsman ever. Nobody's better than me. But Craster yeah. gives him a real argument. You know, it's a real case to be made for, for Craster of Craster's Keep being number one in those power rankings. Yeah, Craster wants to kick everybody out and of course that he's upset that Jon Snow was spying on him 
uh, Jon Snow tells uh, the uh, Lord Commander Mormont about what was going on. He tried to give his kids away. He's giving his sons away. Don't you understand? Uh, and Lord Commander Lord Mormont's Commander Mormont, like, yeah, I actually, actually, I kind of totally understand. Yeah, like, they, <laughs> that's a wildling thing. They do uh, that, you know. You know, it's it, who are we to like knock their culture? You know, like we don't know. They have cooler gods than we do, man. So just like take it easy. Uh, Jon Snow really not feeling that answer i don't think um and lord commander mormon is basically saying look uh we need people like him like this is how you survive north of the wall is like you need allies in the wildlings like you need to understand that their customs are different from ours and if we don't have these alliances we can't do our job effectively and right now their job is pretty high stakes like they are investigating some sort of undead mystery based on that zombie that came alive uh back at Castle Black in season one, and they want to know what the hell is going on. So the stakes are high. Lord Commander Mormont willing to work with a guy like Craster. Unfortunately, John has kind of uh, has kind of ruined that outpost for them. So that's not really an option for them for now. And they're going to leave in the morning. They're going to hit the road again. Okay, Josh, is there anything else that you want to talk about before we get to the spoilers? No, I don't think so. No Daenerys this week, which is uh, a mercy at this point in time. It's been pretty slow. It's been pretty slow, and it's been really devastating and depressing in the Daenerys storyline so far, so I'm cool to skip that for a week. Uh, other than that, there's some fun stuff with Bran and Warging going on in Winterfell and Maester Lewin not really believing in uh, in all of this magical nonsense that Bran seems to be hyping up. Uh, and Sam gave Gilly uh, an ancestral thimble Mm-hmm. So that's that was nice. That happened. Yeah, that happened. Chekhov's thimble. Okay. All right. So uh, with that in mind, let's get into the spoilers. Okay. And now is where we can say that the thimble is what <laughs> saves everybody from utter disaster later on in Game of Thrones when Sam puts the thimble on and pokes a White Walker <laughs> in the eye. The Valerian steel thimble. The Valyrian thimble is a thing. Yeah. Uh, some great thimbleism on Game of Thrones, I have to say. <laughs> All right. Nailed it. Okay. So it. Uh, you mentioned the stuff with Bran. I, just, I didn't have anything to say about that in terms of the non-spoiler stuff. But in terms of where we can talk There's about There's a little the spoilers, bit of spoiler stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, there definitely is. So, uh, I mean, it was sort of just like a non-essential scene in terms of like the first time through just checking in on Bran. We see him uh, warging into the direwolf. And then he's talking with Maester Lewin and Maester Lewin is showing Bran his chain and about how he has like, uh, what is it? Uh, the Valerian link. And uh, I like him like humble bragging about it. Too. He's like, you see this chain? You see this Valerian chain? Only one in 100 Maesters have it. And I don't want to brag, but I got I one. Have it. And, and that, that means I'm pretty cool. Yeah, and he talks about how like, look, when I was a kid, I tried to do magic all the time. Doesn't work. No such thing as magic. Uh, apparently, uh, maybe instead of the seven, maybe you should have been checking out the Lord of Light because it seems like that Lord yeah. of Light has no problems with magic. So Lord of Light knows what's up. Lord of Light has <laughs> it going on. Up. And so he's like, there's no such thing. And then he also tells Bran about uh, something else. And um, perhaps we should be saying that Maester Lewin, in fact, uh, does indeed know nothing. Maybe magic once was a mighty force in the world. Not anymore. The dragons are gone. The giants are dead. 
children of the forest forgotten. Okay, let's check that checklist. It's, yeah. uh, what is it? Uh, dragons, giants, children of the forest. Uh, check, check, and check. We got all of them. <laughs> Well, so, I mean, like, if you want to, you know, apply some weight for it, wiggle room to this interpretation, like, dragons are gone. One of them is, kind of, and now it's like an undead dragon. So that's like a, it's like a, like a quarter tick. Uh, some giants are dead, RIP 1 1, and whatever that zombie giant is that's, uh, now through the wall, that, that guy's dead. Mm-hmm. And the children of the forest, I kind of forgot about that. So like, they all, sort of came and went, dead. is what you're saying? Right. Right, 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 right. No, obviously, Maester Lewin, you know nothing. Uh, and I love Maester Lewin. Maester Lewin is a great presence on the show, uh, while he is on the show. And he provides, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, at least he projects the image of wisdom. But you are getting these lines from him here where it's like, man, you really, you know nothing. And I think it's, it's especially, uh, it's especially fun to look back on in light of season seven of Game of Thrones where we finally start to get some of the culture of the Citadel and going into Old Town and seeing what Samwell goes up against with uh with um Jim Broadbent's character with the Archmaester and how like those guys refuse to entertain anything uh that is supernatural like you're all wrong and you're all going to get you're all going to eat dirt for it like you're all going to eat like really dirty snow because of it uh so not it's John you know Snow. not John <laughs> maybe I don't know if times get desperate they might have no choice uh but yeah I think uh yeah I think it's just an early an early reminder uh you know an early sign that uh the maesters of the citadel maybe uh are a lot more um you know a lot more self-important than they ought to be uh and i think that that is certainly a theme of game of thrones uh of like the younger generation coming into power and the younger generation rising up and having a chance to fight against the true evil and having a chance to right the wrongs of previous generations so i think that having this situation where like they're all these old people that are in positions of power with, you know, this self-professed wisdom and know-how about how the world works for them to be horribly, horribly wrong. And for the younger generation to get it right, I think is one of the the more powerful themes that's at play in Game of Thrones. Not, not trying to shade uh, the elderly. Okay. So Josh, going back to the scene between John and Lord Commander Mormont, well, went- really, really quickly, uh, just before we leave the, the Winterfell stuff altogether. So you do have that scene where you're like in Summer's, uh, perspective and Summer like rushing through the Winterfell courtyard and bounding up onto Bran's bed. And then Bran hops back into his own body and opens his eyes and sees Summer. And that's just like a really great, uh, you know, excellently directed sequence. But one thing that I, that I noticed that I had never really picked up on before is, uh, Hodor, may he rest in peace. What is dead may never die. Hodor like gives uh summer a hodor that to me was like do you know that's bran like do hodor and bran have that kind of connection like based on what we know about hodor that the, he you know he's only hodor because of bran's time traveling antics that he somehow connected a future hodor with the past hodor do you, do you think that there's anything there or is that just like you know read into it if you will and that's kind of fun it obviously doesn't matter ultimately i'd have to go back and look at it it did not stand out to me in that way when i watched it last night I thought it was fun. I thought it was fun. But all right. On to Lord Commander Mormont, who is another old fool, it turns out. Yeah. So uh, we talked about what was going on up there at Craster's and the idea about how uh, he seemed to know a little bit about what was going on with the baby, even if it was just, okay. we look the other way on the wildlings and their customs. But I mean, 
How woke is Lord Commander Mormont to all of this? Does he know that the babies become the White Walkers? I mean, that it, it, he doesn't seem to poo-poo. Because, again, I did not remember exactly what goes on in this scene. But I thought Jon right. Snow was going to talk about this. And he was going to, you know, say, like, uh, Snow, stop with this crazy talk. Uh, but he's like, uh, yeah, look. That um, we know about the sacrifices, like that he seems to like think that maybe is this appeasement more than they are taking those babies and turning them into White Walkers? Yeah, and I don't think that he even necessarily knows that the White Walkers are out there. Like that seems to be like, you know, pretty big news for the Night's Watch and like the whole reason behind this expedition. So I wonder, like, what does Lord Commander Mormont actually think is happening? Like, does he think that Craster is sacrificing the babies to other wildlings? Does he think that he's just like sacrificing them to like deities that don't really exist? And only now Lord Commander Mormont is thinking like, oh, you know what? That would make a lot of sense if there are White Walkers in the woods that he thinks are like gods that he is sacrificing his kids to in in any event um when john tells him i saw one of them take the baby if your whole mission is about like getting to the bottom of what the hell is going on north of the wall don't you think you send a couple of guys to track the white walker now like don't you think you take john snow at his word at least to a degree if you're trying to bust this mystery wide open why wouldn't you just send somebody to go with john and track the white walker and see what you can't find would be worth sacrificing a couple people if you had to do it but at least figure it out get on the mystery get on the case lord commander mormon what are you doing out here yeah, is the problem that they have too many missions where, okay, we're going to go check out what Mance Raider is up to. We're going to go find Benjamin Starks. We're going to investigate the issue with the White Walkers. Are they are they needing one singular focus? Or you've got like a whole squadron of Night's Watch people. How would you send some people on side quests? Side quests, side quests? never hurt anybody. Side quests have never hurt anybody. Uh, have you watched The Walking Dead, Josh? There's a lot of side quests uh. going on. <laughs> Don't trigger me about The Walking Dead right now. We have still not recorded that podcast. And I'm okay. still upset. Still very upset. Please okay. read Leslie Goldberg's great coverage of the latest Walking Dead episode at THR.com slash Walking Dead. Okay. Can we go down to the Stormlands and talk some more about Renly and everything going on there? Of course. Why not? I love Renly. I have to say that I, I really am yeah, bummed I'm out I'm that we are getting close to the end of the road for Renly. But I would love an alternate timeline where Renly and Marjorie uh, stuck together for a while. So uh, the great thing about what we're doing here in Winter Was Here, Rob, is like we are all about the alternate timeline. Like imagine the alternate timeline where Lord Commander Mormont was like, yo, Jon Snow, go track that White Walker. If you thought you saw a White Walker, you should probably go follow that up. And Jon Snow goes and like bags a White Walker. Oh, and he's he's able and to dies. Be- no, he's not going to die. He's not going to die. And if he dies, he'll come back to life because that's just how Jon Snow rolls. But he's able to like track them back to the White Walker headquarters. He's going to like have like all of the evidence that he needs and they're able to bust this thing up a lot quicker like you know that's a possibility but what about the alternate history where Renly Baratheon does not get killed uh, maybe meets Stannis Baratheon on the battlefield and destroys Stannis uh, and gains the loyalty of Stannis's followers does he win the battle of the Blackwater does the Stannis uh, does the Renly Baratheon regime rather do they sit on the Iron Throne and are things a lot more peaceful moving forward we at least have a very alive Marjorie Terrell to consider, I believe. Yeah. 
So we know that we're going to see the High Garden forces, the Tyrell forces. Uh, they're going to end up flipping to the Lannister side by the end of the season. But do they have a fleet? Like, would they have attacked in the same way? And then would the Lannister troops be able to better defend an attack from the ground? Hmm, I wonder. Um, again, you know, uh, we see them fight on the ground against the Dothraki, but that's sort of like, uh, that's their bread and butter, the Dothraki. But I think that, you know, Renly, so Renly's got, you know, 100k people. That's not nothing. He's got some really great soldiers on his side. If he's able to, some, you know, somehow forge an alliance with the Northerners, that's going to be really difficult to defeat. Uh, that's going to be really hard to go up against. I think that alliance is taking down the Lannisters every day of the week. Um, really, the thing is, and this is something more to talk about, and, you know, we'll be able to talk about it in the spoiler-free section, too, even in not quite next week's episode but the week after that like if not for just like some like supernatural shenanigans if not for just like outright cheating and playing this thing like a total punk Stannis Baratheon loses to Renly and Renly totally kicks his ass Mm -hmm. like if not for the shadow baby that's coming up Renly's good how many troops does Stannis have not a ton, I don't think. I mean, he's going to gain off uh, Ren- Renly's people, I believe, or most of them, many of them, I think. Um, but I don't think that he's got a lot. I don't like. I, he talks about that in the episode before this. I like. I could not. I'm not. I'm no match for Renly. Um, you know, on a on a ground battle, we just don't have that kind of support. Uh, so if it came to that, like if it was just played straight down the middle, just like totally fair, uh, Stannis loses to Renly for sure. But you know, he's got a shadow baby up his sleeve or somebody does anyway <laughs> Whoa. is that where it was is that where it was i don't know i don't know where it was okay. i don't i don't want to speculate now we see this duel between uh brianne and laura's tyrell was that a legal move that brianne pulled where she did some sort of like dive tackle and took out laura's i don't know if it's if it's legal but it was awesome mm-hmm. for sure yeah it's definitely great Great to watch Captain Phasma beat the crap out of Iron Fist. I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah. That was fun. That was fun to revisit for sure. Yeah, well done. And so because Brienne won the duel, she was allowed to get any request from Renly and she wants to be in his Kingsguard. I just felt like that that scene was a little bit like uh, executed oddly because then we get the backstory and we know from the future that Renly and Brienne, of course, know each other. But it seems like that I was that just for the court. Was it theater? I think it's a little bit theatrical. Yeah. Uh, were you surprised that she didn't want a Red Rider uh, BB gun? <laughs> like that was the the request she didn't else. make. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, that uh, she just wants to be around Renly and Loris was uh, not happy about it. Loris uh, did not take that loss particularly gracefully. I didn't think. Uh, you know, this is the second time like he's really gotten you know his his uh, his himself wrecked at the hands of just like a massive monstrous warrior. Uh, you know, Brienne is no mountain, but she's a, she's very big. She's a tough fighter. She's a strong warrior, uh, and Loris just gets knocked flat by her. Uh, so I don't think that he was he was loving that. But I don't know. I loved Renly. Um, 
accepting Brienne into the King's Guard. I thought that that was like a great demonstration of his uh, of his like you know royal ruling philosophy of like yes, of course a woman can serve on the King's Guard. Why not? She's a badass. She just kicked the ass of the Knight of Flowers. How could I say no? I don't know. I I mourn the world where Renly Baratheon didn't survive and got to sit on the Iron Throne. I do think he would have been a pretty good king. You know, a little bit arrogant, but I think that arrogance is an okay trait if you are, uh, or at least self-confidence is an okay trait if you are a kind person otherwise and a, a smart and strong ruler. I think Renly could have done it. I think, yeah. I mean, a, bore, a boring show, I, I suppose, but uh, a, a future where Renly Baratheon is uh, is ruling, I think, would have been a very kind future for the people of Westeros. And especially uh, Renly and Marjorie, uh, king and queen, sitting at the, uh, you know, uh, in, up at yes. King's Landing. And I, especially with somebody who was like a good hand of the king, we, we don't really know who Renly was going to have as hand of the king who could have been sort of maybe like more of a veteran. Like if he had like a Tyrion in his corner, I think that that would have been a good ticket. Ooh, yeah. I mean, like, is there any world in which like the, you know, Renly destroys Stannis, marches on King's Landing wins the battle of the Blackwater and, you know, Tyrion, like having lost is basically selected, like is spared because like you clearly have no love for the rest of the Lannisters and like, you'd be really great at this. So how about you? Uh, you've been doing a decent job. Could you just be my hand of the King? I don't know. I mean, don't think so. Don't think Renly so. Like was stretch. operating in King's Landing during Robert's reign, but, um, I don't think they have like some sort of functional relationship. You would think maybe. Yeah. He didn't really have anybody. Uh, maybe the best we could hope for would be like a Varys, but uh, I don't know. Well, it's uh, all for naught. All for naught. I mean, this is this is like very light speculation because this guy this guy's toast and just a, <laughs> just a couple of weeks. People, he's almost he's almost out of here. Yeah. All right. Oh, uh, so we could also talk about in the world of Theon and everything going on in the Iron Islands. Uh, what happens if Theon sends the letter? If Theon sends the letter, uh, you know, I don't think that everybody in Winterfell is going to just get iced, you know, like or burned or stabbed or what have you. I think that things probably work out a little bit better. Uh, I think that you can imagine Rob getting the upper hand on uh, some of these Iron Islanders or at least having a fighting chance. Uh, but I don't know what that means for Theon. Like, how does Theon get out of that situation? I think Theon is in trouble no matter what. It's a tough it's a tough look for Theon Greyjoy. This is a this is a really bad situation he's gotten himself into. Yeah, in the beginning of the episode, that Theon is hanging out at Pike, and then Yara comes in, and he's just like, "What are you doing here?" Mm-hmm. Like, well, but I think she lives here. I think this is her house, right? This is her house, man. This is her house. You're in her house. What do you want? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a it's a shame. Like, do you think that we're gonna see Theon's ship, the Sea Bitch, as it is supposedly <laughs> called, in the final season Watch of Game of Thrones? Watch out for the fisherman nets, Theon. Yeah, yeah. Those nets, they'll get you every time. The dark net. Got to got to be careful that dark net. Uh, yeah, Theon is in big trouble here. Uh, he is in he is in a real world of hurt. We are at the uh, we're really early on in the journey of just like the Theon Greyjoy whirlwind of terror that is about to ensue. Uh, it's it's not fun. It's not fun to think about. It's a it's a very very hard times are ahead for this guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Yara told Theon that look, uh, our ships sail uh, with or without you, and this would have been a uh, great week in the Game of Thrones wand off. Also, <laughs> yeah, that is definitely true. With or without you. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, uh, let's talk about uh, everything going on in King's Landing. And I thought that we get a really fun scene with Cersei and Marcella and Tommen and Sansa over dinner. And we get to see like these early glimpses of Tommen, who will be a uh, much more important character later. And look completely different yes. because he's literally going to be a different human being. He'll be a different person. As will Marcella. As will Marcella. But <laughs> it, it is interesting that, you know, Sansa has to eat with them. Right, right, right. It makes me sad because I feel like they all could have gotten along. Like, you know, if uh, if these two children were lucky enough to survive all of the terror that was uh, that's coming their way. Uh, and like if Sansa and the rest of the Starks, you assume Cersei is not going to be in power by the end of the show. Like if they're able to, like, come up with some sort of truce with these kids, like they seem amenable. Uh, and like you really do get these great character notes, especially on Tom and where he's like, I don't know that I would want, you know, Joffrey to kill Rob. Like that seems like that would be mean. Tom was such a sweet little guy. Good he guy. Was such a nice, nice little guy. That kid would have been a great king if someone had just left him alone. I feel like you know, kind kid, kindness rules, and unfortunately, too sweet for this world. Yeah, too good for this world, poor Tom. Too good for this world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we talked about Shay uh, having to go and be the handmaiden to Sansa. Um, you know, Shay really is. Uh, you know, she's so difficult. That that's the frustration i've had with like she just can't seem to get her head around like oh okay T- oh Tyrion, you're actually trying to uh protect me right like yeah, oh, again. oh okay i get it oh i get it because i'm a prostitute and uh you're right. like an important guy and uh this would be a, a really bad luck if uh this, we got found out about okay yeah i get that yeah, I'd forgotten, to be honest, about the Sansa and Shay dynamic, that this was going to be a thing. To be completely honest, I had really just completely forgotten this from uh, from the history of Game of Thrones. But it starts here, and uh, Sansa, not a fan of Shay to begin with. I think that that relationship will soften moving forward to some degree, but I don't know. Shay is just a character that never really quite lands on the show for me. I think it's I'm hard-pressed to find a ton of people who are like big fans of Shay. I maintain that what Tyrion does to Shay later on in the show is dark AF uh, and is, you know, something that has not been, uh, I think, answered for nearly enough on the show. Um, but I think that as far as she is as a character, I'm not really sure what it comes down to. I think there there is that level of aggravation with the character that just, it's kind of hard to transcend. Uh, and so she's always somebody that is just like a little bit of a frustrating presence on the show. But I feel like that Tyrion is always good to her and always thinking of her. And yes, this is like the is crazy medieval society and is not the same as our 21st century world but operating under those circumstances i feel like that Tyrion tries to do right by shay at every single opportunity i think you know in his mind he is at least you know in his mind like you know he is he is protecting her and he is keeping her safe but maybe like the best way to have done that would have been to not take her to king's landing mm-hmm just an argument just a thought just a thought like maybe leave her behind maybe that'll maybe that'll be easier maybe maybe hear your dad out on this one thing uh if he's making you interim hand of the king and he's asking for one allowance maybe give him the allowance maybe give him the allowance okay i want to talk about Tyrion's plot here where he ends up telling the different plan to Littlefinger 
uh, to Varys and to Pycelle. Uh, we talked through the plan that he gives to Pycelle, but can we talk through the couple of fake plans that he puts out there, Josh? Ooh, uh, yes, absolutely. So one of the plans was to send Marcella to the Iron Islands to marry Theon Greyjoy. Uh, and to, what would, what would that be? To, to go up against the, to, to the North? You know, are we going to weaken the North if we are going to have, uh, Theon linked to Marcella? Is that the plan there? Is that going to work out? Yeah, it's kind of a crazy plan. Like the two plans that he tells to Varys and Littlefinger, I'm surprised they don't get met with more resistance because what what Tyrion tries to sell Varys is like, no, what we'll do is we'll send Sansa off to the Iron Islands to marry Theon, and then that'll make Rob Stark so mad. It's like, well, hold on, that you have no information other than Theon is a ward of the Starks. Like, aren't you giving Sansa back to the Starks? Like, why wouldn't they just bring her back like I, that they have no reason to believe that theon is not with the starks he has not yet betrayed the starks so that's a bad plan right well i mean he's not offering sansa you know he's not offering to send sansa back uh, to marcel theon. marcel even still yeah, even yeah, still yeah. that uh it's that that, it, that that's even worse well, it's hard to argue that it doesn't go the worst possible route with the actual plan. <laughs> Marcella totally dies in Dorne. Yeah, so but I that think, was- you know, I, <laughs> I think she's ill-fated no matter what. Uh, I don't think the Theon plan is great. Um, I don't think that the Lysa Aaron plan is especially great as well. And you do imagine, like, if either of those two plans got back to Cersei and then Tyrion takes Bronn to Littlefinger or Varys and tries to like pull an intimidation move on them the way he does with Pycelle like they could very easily just be like dude your plan sucked like what do you want mm. me to do like I'm not like I'm am I gonna tell that to you to your face right it's a bad plan and then to have Marcella marry uh Robin Aaron I mean Littlefinger doesn't even say like he's five he and he's sickly uh yeah. <laughs> just- it's a bad match this is a bad plan. He doesn't really throw that out there. He's willing to uh, hear it out. Ultimately, also, Littlefinger is going to go get assigned to go meet with Kat, who Tyrion uh, seems to have a good sense of where she is. A couple of things uh, as we are on Littlefinger watch uh, is I think it is worth noting how furious he is with Tyrion after he's been duped and how easily duped he was uh, in terms of that initial plan. Like he really did think that this was going to be the thing and he's going to be valuable to Tyrion. He was not expecting to be uh, to be bagged on, uh, to be dunked on by the dink. Uh, and it turns out that he was and he's so upset when he comes back to Tyrion. I think it shows how susceptible he is to like a really really tantalizing plan he's just going to want to execute on that's how Littlefinger rolls um, and on top of that I think it shows that this idea that he presents later on in Game of Thrones towards the end of his run on the show of like you have to see every possible scenario see every possible outcome in your mind fight every single battle everywhere and then nothing will be a surprise like Practice what you preach, just a little bit better. Uh, you know, if we're really looking at Littlefinger as one of these power players, um, he is, he has shown time and time again in this early run of Game of Thrones that I think he's a lot more talk than he is action. So I think that that, that's one aspect of it. The other thing is, uh, how how quickly we forget that that Littlefinger is going to be one of the guys who uh, Harrenhal passes yeah. through his hands. 
you know and oh, it's the a curse place. he got the curse i think he got the curse of harren hall oh i think is God. a thing right yeah you know Speaking of Harren Hall, uh, Arya and Gendry are headed there, and we saw them at the end of this episode end up being captured. We also saw Arya free Jek and Hagar from the cell that was about to catch on fire. Uh, you know, you, these battle scenes, you know, aren't complete until something is on fire, and it looked like the fire was getting close to Jack and Hagar. We talked last episode about. How much did Jack and Hagar let himself get captured here? Uh, are you uh, more in or more out on that idea? I feel like I'm pretty out on it at this point. Like, he seemed pretty desperate in that moment. He's like, yo, uh, help, please yeah. help. Like, I, you don't really tend to see like the faceless men that desperate. Yeah. Uh, Jack and Hagar looking pretty desperate in that moment. But he seemed so taken with Arya. I mean, all she did, she handed him the axe and it looked like that he he just like he watches her and it's like he knows something. Yeah. Yeah. I think I look, I think he's watching her. I think he probably knows that she's Arya Stark, probably knows that she's important. Um, but in terms of like he is there for her, that that does feel like if not the reach, it feels like a reach. Mm-hmm. You know, it, fe- it feels like a little bit of a stretch. Uh, and I think especially after this episode where he's, you know, kind of just like, ah, help. You know, I think that there's a there's a little bit of something. Uh, I don't I don't know that there's too much there there. Well, I still want to know how he got captured. Yeah, no, that's for the, like the inevitable prequel comic book. Uh, that'll, that'll come out. If that hasn't happened yet, uh, you know, in like 10 years, I'll be surprised, shocked. Okay. Josh, what else from this episode do you want to touch on? Um, I guess I, w- I would look at just staying on this scene for one last note. Um, is this story that Yorin tells Arya about his brother and about the vengeance he enacted, uh, and how he buried an axe so deep into this guy, Willem's skull, that they had to bury him with it. And then Willem's horse is what got me to the wall, and I've been wearing black ever since. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a really fascinating tale about like the nature of vengeance and what you buy uh what you're actually buying when you pay that price you know when you are when you're willing to or not even when you're willing but when you when you make that choice to put everything on the line just to avenge an old grudge uh that you lose so much and we have watched Arya on a really epic vengeance tour during the rest of her time on Game of Thrones and she is hearing this uh this story at such a formative time in her life and it's something we talked about a lot during the season seven podcasts uh steven fishback who was your co-host on the live shows the snow it alls during season seven i know it was a theory that was near and dear to his heart and it hasn't happened yet but i am really worried about Arya starts long-term prospects on game of thrones i think that there's something here in just sort of maybe potentially foreshadowing some kind of really sad bad outcome for Arya. ultimately that this guy who fantasized uh repeated the name of the person he was fantasizing fantasizing uh getting revenge towards uh in his mind over and over again willem 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 that's really reminiscent of the list of names that Arya is going to have in her head and just how she's going to dwell on that forever and how she's going to execute on a lot of that and it just makes me wonder like what is she buying what is she actually buying like what is the what is the end result of that going to be is she going to get yorned to some degree i hope not 
but I could really see it. And I think that this is something just like a little bit of a flag to plant in the ground. If the writers of the story, if Benioff and Weiss having talked to George R. R. Martin know some of the final shades of these characters, even at this point in the story, that this could be an early sign of where Arya is ultimately going. And who is the person that's left on her list that you think that she is ultimately consumed with getting that revenge against? Is there somebody that's at the top? Yeah, I think that you can, you know, I think a lot of people have thought about like the mountain. Like, I think that that would be too brutal. Like, I think that that would be too, uh, that would be really, really very, very violent. Um, but I mean, maybe there would be something where Arya can be a participant in the Clegane Bowl to some degree. She does have that connection with the hound. Uh, so maybe there could be like some sort of team up there where she could either be instrumental in killing the mountain or get killed in that moment. But if she's successful in killing the mountain and then there's really just Cersei left and she goes up against Cersei and somehow loses that battle I think would be really really devastating um, I think that you know those are really the names you know those are the two people those are the biggest people that she has left to contend with still uh, and I think that there could be some sort of pursuit of vengeance there where we know that going into season eight Cersei is planning on betraying the alliance that she just uh, you know the very tenuous alliance that she just forged with Jon and Daenerys that I think that you could see Arya's story threading towards that side of the equation and and maybe ending there somehow. And maybe that brings Sansa into that mix a little bit as well, where I think one of Sansa's endgame antagonists has to be Cersei, too. I think that, you know, we're getting a real great reminder of that here in season two of the relationship that those two characters had once upon a time. And now that Sansa's basically the veritable queen of the North and Cersei is uh, the queen in King's Landing, I think some sort of confrontation there makes a lot of sense to me. And maybe having Arya be some kind of casualty in the mix of that. I feel like you could see it, or at least I could see it. I don't know. We'll see. All right. Interesting to see uh, if we have any other clues to Arya's ultimate fate along the way. I do feel like that that is one of the big mysteries that we're looking at. I feel like that a lot of other people, like, I think that we sort of know what their destiny is. And Arya to some degree, is, at least, yeah. you know, I think the person that might be a major figure who has the most hazy sort of path forward in these last couple episodes. Right, because like in that's even like taking out do they live or do they die, but like what is their what is their place in the story right now? Like Bran, you could see him dying, but like you know that his three eyed raven stuff is gonna factor into the end game and like the battle against the Night King. Jon Snow, he may die again, uh, but you know that he'll be a big force to be reckoned with in this war against the White Walkers. Not really sure about Sansa, frankly, in terms of her relationship to the White Walker war, except that I like her uh I like her odds of having the story lose with she's got to meet Daenerys I feel like that's a character combination you got to imagine we're going to get at some point and I think that you got to you got to imagine some sort of final confrontation between Sansa and Cersei as well uh, but I think Arya like where does the show really really go with Arya it is a little bit nebulous to me I think of the of the Stark children uh, and I'm, I'm lumping John into that as well I think that she is uh, the most the, like you said the haziest to predict the hardest to predict all right, Josh, anything else from this episode three of season two of Game of Thrones? No, greatest episode of season two so far, and it's not close and probably largely due to the fact that we did not have to, you know, do the red waste of time, I think was probably probably a good deal to stay away from the Daenerys storyline for another week, though. We'll get back into it next week and it'll, you know, not be as bad as it ever gets, but mm, we're getting back on track. Okay. I liked also uh, going back to Kat and the Renly story that Kat is saying, yes, Renly has 100,000 men, but these are the Knights of Summer that they are not prepared. Winter is coming and you have Knights of Summer. 
Yeah, yeah. Really just like, uh, I don't know. Really feeling her, her northern, uh, her northern ties, yeah. uh, in these, in this episode for sure. She's, She's just really throwing it out there. Winter shaming them. Winter shaming. <laughs> like, you guys don't even have jackets. Oh my just God. The nights of summer. Light, late arrival for the hashtag this week. Winter shaming. No, no, it's thimbleism. <laughs> okay, either one. Don't, don't sleep on thimbleism. <laughs> sure. Okay. Well, there you go. You've got your choice, people. Okay. All right. Uh, Josh, great stuff. Uh, can you give us a sneak preview as to what is coming next? All right. Garden of Bones Ooh. is coming next. We're going to Garden of Bones. We potentially have uh, an iconic image that we may need to consider for the iconic image list. Uh, we're going to have a really uh, dark scene involving Sansa. We're going to have a really bad scene involving her. Some real high drama in King's Landing. And we're going to go to Harrenhal. Uh, we are going to arrive at Harrenhal. We're going to see what that place is all about. And it's been a minute since we checked in on uh, the Rob that Starks. Uh, but he is going to be meeting Talisa uh, for the first time. She is going to be arriving in Game of Thrones next week. Oh, boy. So, it was a good run. This is a good run. It was a good run. But the beginning of the end for Rob Stark is on the way. Okay. All right. Well, great work as always, Josh Wiggler. You can follow Josh Wiggler on Twitter. He's at Ron Howard and keep tabs of everything that he is working on over at THR.com. I'm at Rob Sisterino. Uh Josh, uh, what else are you working on at this point in time? What else am I working on? Well, as we speak, uh, there is a new Game of Thrones interview that I just posted on The Hollywood Reporter with Sansa Stark herself, Sophie Turner, speaking with me from the, set, from the set of Game of Thrones. I was not there. She was there. It was a phone call. Uh, but she talked a lot about sort of what the emotionality is on set right now, what the vibe is on set, and a little bit of what to expect uh, from the future of the show. Sounds like it's going to get more epic. Is that a shock? Does that seem like How's a surprising headline? <laughs> I feel like it's super possible. I feel like it's really the only direction this can go. So I think I thought that was a great read. Uh, personally, uh, I thought that she really was uh, was really fun to speak with and had a lot of great sharp thoughts on Game of Thrones. So check that out. THR dot com slash Game of Thrones and uh, may have another interview uh, with somebody from Game of Thrones coming up in the not too distant future. So just stay tuned to that bookmark. THR dot com slash Game of Thrones is where all of my Game of Thrones shenanigans can be found. OK, is it with Yorin? Will you catch up I with Yorin? I wish. I wish. I wish. We'll get to the Yorin cast at the end of this whole thing, I feel like. You know, we'll we'll have some time to fill uh before twenty nineteen when Game of Thrones comes back. So <laughs> okay. all right. Great stuff, Josh Wagler. We will be back. Uh scheduling wise, that if you're listening to this podcast on the day that it drops, uh, you may notice that uh, while we had been putting out episodes of this podcast on Tuesdays, uh we are now moving to Wednesdays, Westeros Wednesdays. How about that, Josh? Makes sense. Makes sense. Kind of feels like, how did we not put that together earlier on in the process? But yeah, these are going to be coming out on Wednesdays now. All right. So check us out. Westeros Wednesdays for the foreseeable future. Take care, everybody. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.